All right, we're going to continue, even though we're on our camping trip and outside, we're going to continue with uh, our study in Ecclesiastes, and the text uh, is right there in front of you in the order, so that'll be easy. Um, just a reminder, as we've worked our way through this up until this point, uh, Kohelet, that's the name of the teacher, uh, the gatherer, the, the one who assembles. It literally means the one who assembles and teaches people. And remember, he's talked a lot. This refrain has happened over and over again where he says, life under the sun. And what is life under the sun except that which we all experience as humans, but particularly if we live life and think of it from the perspective with God out of the picture, where we just function as if there is no creator, no eternal higher perspective under the sun. It really means trying to bring meaning and value and purpose to life without our creator, without our God. And what, is the, what does the writer say right at the beginning of Ecclesiastes 1.1? He says that all of life lived under the sun is vanity, vanity. It's, it's empty. It's a, it's a vapor. It's, it's poof. It's gone. And uh, it's fleeting. And, w- and it's even more so when we try to use the things of creation uh, to bring meaning and value and purpose apart from God. It doesn't work. Uh, they can't bring us real value. They can't bring us real joy or significance or satisfaction. I remember as a kid, uh, my mom would buy these, um, these ornaments and some of these ornaments, uh, you know, were, were uh, really cool. Like I remember as a kid looking at these ornaments that had like a bike or a a wagon. I I thought that would be such a cool bike, uh, to ride or a cool wagon to, to pull things along with. But of course, (laughs) what's wrong with that? It, 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 it can't hold me. Even if I was a five-year-old, it, it's not designed to hold anyone. An ornament is only meant to be looked at to, to represent and to point to something. That's the way, if we're trying to find value and meaning in life, if we're trying to find joy um, with just the created things, not the creator, it will fail. It can't hold us. It can't, it can't think of that. It can't even bear the weight of trying to uh, provide for us those things apart from God. So today we're going to look at a popular passage in Ecclesiastes. You'll recognize it. Um, you'll recognize it. Some of you will even start in, in the back of your mind rehearsing the bird song from the 60s. Uh, to every season turn. I didn't even know that song until the Forrest Gump soundtrack. Um, <laughs> some of you maybe had that soundtrack. And of course that song is, is, is real peppy. Um, that's not exactly the, 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 uh, the intent or the tone, I don't think. But if you were to um, just look with me as we're going to read this portion from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we're going to read the first 15 verses. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter. A time to be born, a time to under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Then verse 9, what gain 
has the worker from his toil. I've seen the business of God that he has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, and that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor nothing taken from it. God has done it so that the people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Let's ask his help right now in prayer. Father, we know that you are a good father who gives us good gifts, and we pray that right now, you would help us to see ourselves. You'd see, help us to see our sin and unbelief, and we would trust you more by faith. For we pray for and by Christ. Amen. Charles Dickens describes a particular period. It's relevant to all times. It was written a long time ago. It's a tale of two cities. In a tale of two cities, he writes, it was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. It was an age of wisdom and an age of foolishness. And he goes on to talk about these ages, a season of light and darkness, of hope and a a winter of despair. We had everything before us and we had nothing before us. And so Coalette, the, the teacher, Ecclesiastes, is describing, or should we say observing, all of the same ebbs and flows of life. The range of emotions, experiences, activities. And what he describes here is something that is unique to no one and relevant to everyone. Think about that, right? And what I want us just to examine in this portion of God's word is two things from this familiar passage. One is the best of times and the worst of times under the sun. And then the other is the best of times and the worst of times under a sovereign God. The best of times and the worst of times under the sun, and the best of times and the worst of times under a sovereign God. First of all, under the sun, those first opening eight verses, most of us and most all of activities fall between those two extremes, right? He establishes the extremities of life and death and everything that happens in between. Verse 2 is that extreme, a time to be born and a time to die. Now, remember the song, right, the, the tune uh, that the birds sang that's on that, that soundtrack. Uh, it's real peppy, and it's, it's, it's more prescriptive. This is what we ought to do with our lives. This is how we ought to shape our experience, and this is how we ought to go and, and seize up life. But the original, the, the, the writer inspired of God is actually not saying what we should prescribe. He's actually describing what happens to us. Does that make sense? He's, he's saying this is inevitable for all of us. He goes on to, to contrast 14 things, 14 contrasts where we can all identify to some extent. There's he- healing. There's things that we love, healing and building and, uh, and love. But then there's other things that we, worst of times, of course, don't desire. Tearing, mourning, war. Maybe another modern way of, uh, of describing this would be something like, there's a time to buy diapers, and then there's a time to wonder if you've got enough money to feed teenagers all the groceries they need, right? 
There's a time to buy a new pair of running shoes. And there's a time to get a hip or a knee replacement, right? Can I get a witness, Rich? There's a time for diplomacy. And then there's a time to enter into war and conflict. There's a time for welcoming children. And there's a time for infertility. There's a time, you see, again and again, this tension. There's a time for camping, and there's a time to go home and sleep in your own bed, you know, and take a shower in your own shower. If we only view things under the sun and not under a sovereign God, then we're ultimately bound to see life as just a cycle of, of meaning, meaninglessness where we're thrown to and fro with all the waves of emotion, all of which hinge upon circumstances. Circumstances are great. It's the best of times. If they're not, it's the worst. Verse 11, from beginning to end, it calls us to submit to the truth that we find elsewhere in Acts 1 when the Lord Jesus, before he ascends, he says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has fixed with his own authority. The whole of Scripture clarifies that God is sovereign. And the teacher's reflecting on that sovereignty. We say God's complete and, and, and uh, his, his, his knowledge and his control and authority over everything. He reflects on that in verse 14 because he says, whatever, I perceive that whatever God does before, in, it endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken away from it. And he's done that so people will fear God. Now, God doesn't need to go shopping at Ikea, but if he did, he doesn't come home and try to assemble that project and reach the end and say, why do I have two pegs and two screws left over, right? God doesn't, God doesn't have a puzzle in front of him and say, where is the missing piece? What, why is this not all coming together? God knows. He sees it, knows it, understands from beginning to end. Some people make it akin. And that's what the writer of, of, of Ecclesiastes, he's, he understands that, but he's frustrated by it. And we are too. We're frustrated that we can't understand the mystery of how God works. Sometimes I've heard it described when we think about the sovereignty of God. And from our perspective, right, un, just under the sun, is that it's, it's akin to a, an elaborate tapestry. Maybe you've seen a tapestry, right? And the backside of the tapestry from underneath the thing is filled with snarls and knots and randomness and chaos. And, and it doesn't look like anything. But if you take a tapestry and you turn it on its other side, you see artistry and order and beauty and meaning. Does that make sense? Praise God. Someday we will see the beauty of it. We'll praise him for his wisdom. We'll praise him for his power. We'll thank him for his goodness. And we'll say, I'm so sorry. I questioned you. I, I, I'm finite. I, don't, I, I couldn't understand the mystery. Now I see. God's powerful works are never modified. And they're never manipulated by humanity and our works. It's reminiscent of... Deuteronomy 4, when it says, when God says in his law to the people of Israel, you should not add to God's law or his word, and you should not take away from it. 
And the same thing with God's works. We cannot add to it, we're told here, nor can we take away from his complete control. So let me encourage you this day, this week, this month, all that might lie ahead. And I want you to remind me of this too when I find myself in the valley not understanding and wrestling with God's sovereignty and what happens, that he is good. The worst of times, the worst of times in our career, in our marriage, in our relationship with our parents, in our relationship with our children, in conflict, in want, in, in grief. What do we do? Sometimes we try to scurry around trying to grab control where it's like a flurry of activity and we're trying to we're, we're, we're making phone calls and we're, we're trying to line everything up and we're trying to make it happen and we're, 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 we're restless. We're calling our insurance company. We're checking our bank account. We're, we're doing all of this stuff. Instead of hitting the pause button and saying, God, you are our place of mighty refuge, a rock. You're worthy of my trust. And, and, I, I'm, I, and that's not to say that we're just paralyzed, right? Well, I can't do anything but just sit here and wait for the sovereign God to, to do something. We're still... We're still beings who work and live and, and function, but the restlessness in, in the interior of our souls doesn't need to be there. He is an ever-present help. If we're living life in the broader view under God, then we continue to live not with despair or apathy, but with truth and faith. Let me read this quote from Margaret Clarkson, who's a centuries back, hymn writer, the sovereignty of God is one secure rock to which human suffering and the, which the suffering in the human heart must cling. The circumstances surrounding our lives are no accident. They may be the work of evil, but that evil is held firmly within the hand of our sovereign God. All evil is subject to him. And evil cannot touch his children unless he permits it. God is the Lord of human history and all of personal history of every member of his redeemed family. He does not explain his actions to us any more than he did explain them to Job. But he has given us what the sufferers of old never had, the written revelation of of his sovereignty, of his love, of, his, of the manifestation of himself in the Savior. Two friends of mine, Steve and Barbara. Years ago, I can, I can distinctly remember them driving around in their, their SUV. And they, they, this is before they had bike racks on the back uh, that were a part of your hitch, you know. A lot of bike racks on top. Steve... Barbara loves to ride bikes and do cycling events, and Steve likes to eat. Opposites attract. Um, so, so here's what would happen. They go on a road trip, and Barbara's bike, her expensive road bike's on top, and Steve, every time they would leave, would put a big sign hanging from the rearview mirror, there's a bike on top. Why? Because Steve was going to inevitably pull into a fast food restaurant to get something and crush that bike. So I'm speaking figuratively here, but maybe instead of trying to drive looking in the rearview mirror, we look forward ahead. But just that one reminder, if we were to hang it, so to speak, right in front of us, right in front of us, it says God is in control. All that unfolds in those 14 contrasts are trying to convey that very message to us. 
It's not what we're making happen. It's what's happening to us, whether we script or like the story, because we can't. God is in control. Verse 15, the writer concludes, that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks that which is driven away. He's talking about accountability. He's talking about uh, living and walking in light of that. Great book that I came across this past week, We Are Only Human. Kelly Capick says, all of us bounce between the two illusions that we're in control and the world's demonstration that we're not. We're reminded that we're fragile. We're dependent creatures. We're, there's far less control in the world and even less control of ourselves than we'd like to imagine. Some people respond by living in pass, as passive victims, while others aggressively seize to try to get as much control as they possibly can. And what we do matters. We can and we do change things. But when we suppose that we can control all our circumstances, we soon find out that we cannot. And we don't say the words, but we live as though the weight of the world were on our shoulders. And it is exhausting. We're only humans. The course of our lives in this fallen world, all affected by sin, will most assuredly mark us, not define us, but mark us with sweet and also bitter moments between life and death. But the meaning of our life is not defined by those. We need to repent of the unbelief that has us grasping for the illusion of control. We must join with the psalmist who says in Psalm 31, but I will trust in the Lord. I will say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Deliver me from my enemies and from those who pursue me. So, if we, but if we view life, best of times, worst of times, under the sovereign care of God, that's the eternal perspective. It's, it's above time. The seasons that are all listed there in verses 2 through 8 are the grand unfolding of God's sovereignty. It leaves the teacher rhetorically asking in verse 9, what gain does the worker have from his toil? And he's answering the question that he introduced that we read back in chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain from all the toil he does under the sun? And then he answers it in the negative in chapter 2, verse 11, when he says, I considered all that my hands had done, the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. Look at, look at verse 11. What does it say? Verse 11 reminds us, it's an encouragement of the sovereign God. He has made everything beautiful in its time. In other words, it's beautifully fitting. It's appropriate. It's right. Life is not a random, chaotic sequence of events that's impersonal. No, God has, verse 11, put eternity into man's heart. Yet he did that, that we might fear him. Not with anxiety, but with awe and reverence and praise and thanks and submission and surrender. How does it play out in the course of our lives? No, we already know that. We forget about God at the best of times. In the worst of times, we're tempted to blame him. May it not be so. May God help us. Sometimes I wonder if God, you know, 
in the fear of God and understanding that He has appointed the day at which we will reach the end of our lives, that He's calling us to, to yield. And even when we try to grasp for control and we ignore Him, that we run it into the ground. And even in, the, in those moments of weakness and failure and our mistakes, it's almost, a, it's almost at that point that we learn more, that he actually uses not, not our successes and our victories and achievements, but, but when we've really screwed up to humble us, to teach us to trust him all the more and to, to relate to other people and their pain and their hurt, their frustration. When we're not inclined to listen to God, we don't learn. God, think of this. God has even used our sin to bring about the salvation that he has for his children. It's been a tough few years. Some more for others. How can we grieve or even rejoice as a people with hope and meaning under that sovereignty of God? That makes sense. Little exercise. Can I get can I get a young person to volunteer? Maybe two 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 volunteer two young people. How young? You got two, three, two, two going on three children. You're too old. Can I get some? Can I get some? So a young person, two young people. Salote, please come up. Graham, please come on up. Thank you. Can you draw a diagram of what time looks like? <laughs> Let, let's back up. Why don't you look at everybody? How how much time do you have in a day? Twenty four hours. Twenty four hours, Graham. How much time do you have in your day? 24 hours. You guys have the same amount of time. Where did that come from? Who gave you the time? God. God gave you the time. All right, let's try to draw time. Look, can you draw time? What does time look like? What you, if you had to draw time, what would, what would it look like? Just, just try to draw time. Not spell it, just draw it out. Can you draw it? Excellent, excellent, yes. Okay, that's perfect. Graham, could you draw something of how you would illustrate time? Okay, now, what's that look like? It looks like a clock. It looks like, uh, maybe, maybe it looks like the alarm clock next to your bed, right? That's what it looks like. Now, could, could one of you guys draw eternity? You're looking rather puzzled. Can you draw eternity? No. Is there anything that might represent eternity? That looks like eternity. God. Okay, can, we can't draw God. Anybody here can draw eternity? We think about time. This is this is an eternity. This is a description. Thank you. Very good. You may be seated. So if we sometimes we think about time, we think about a clock. We think about digits. Oftentimes we think about time as a line. It's linear. And when we talk about eternity, we say, "Oh, well, what's eternity? Eternity is, you know, a line going back and a line going forward. But it's still only a line." 
we can't even draw eternity when we try to draw like this. It's a figure eight and it shows the, the, the continuation, but that's not eternity. That's only a description. Why do I highlight that? God created time. We can't describe it. We just use it. Everybody, doesn't matter their age, doesn't matter the season of life, doesn't matter anything. No matter where they live, we all have 24 hours in a day. And, we can't, and that's frustrating sometimes. For children, it's not that frustrating. But as you get older, young people, I'm telling you, it gets frustrating because there, there are seasons when you want more time and you don't have it. Let me close with this. God is above all of that. So when we talk about eternity in our hearts in this passage, we're saying that God is above time. God, time is a created part of the created world. God is above time. So don't think about it as a line going one or two directions. God is above time. How do we know that? Exodus 3, when Moses encounters God for the first time, a glimpse of God, he says, I'm going to go back to the people. Who should I tell them sent me? And in Exodus 3, verse 14, it says, this is my name. God says to Moses, you tell my people, this is my name. I am that I am. What does that mean? Well, notice he didn't say, uh, I am the God who was, or I am the God who will be. He says it in present tense. I am that I am. And eternally, he is that. It's one of the very reasons also that when the Lord Jesus is described in Revelation, it is said that behold, the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. Now, how is that possible? Because God is above time. And when we experience eternity in our hearts and that longing for a home and a place where we're not constrained and subject to this, we experience the fullness of glory, we will see Jesus. It's, it, it's why the Bible, even when we describe the fact that we, in Hebrews 10, have been sanctified. We, we have been raised, even now, present tense, with Christ. How is that possible? Well, through repentance and faith, we're united to him. And the fact that he raised Christ from the dead is all the more reason that he can reverse whatever he wants to. And he is greater than time. He is the eternal I am. Again, Revelation 13 says, Before the foundation of the world, that lamb was slain. When time is fleeting, or even when we feel like time has been stolen from us through loss and death and grief and hurt, why don't we just grieve and just eat and, and, and drink and try to enjoy the small fruits of our labor? Well, the question lies in part the answer in 1 Corinthians 15 when the, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, echoing, right? Remember this, this phrase that occurs again in Ecclesiastes. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But there's this, there's this under God contingency to it because we ought to do that if and only if the dead, he writes, are not raised. But the dead are raised, and we are raised with Christ in repentance and faith. Yes, there are all kinds of seasons that we encounter, the best of times and the worst of times, but something genuinely marvelous and mysterious and 
miraculous, inevitably supernatural occurs when death is powerfully reversed, when we see the resurrection of Christ and we just, we just contemplate all of the implications of that. I'll close with reading 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul writes of the ramifications of the resurrection. He says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life we have hoped in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each to his own order. Christ the first fruits, then the coming of those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, and he delivers the kingdom of God to, the, to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Is another disappointment going to come? Another natural disaster, another pandemic, another illness going to strike my family, another broken relationship. I don't know. Best of times, worst of times. None of us does. But we do know this. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Christ is coming again. Amen. It doesn't just give us, by the way, hope for then. It gives us joy now. It gives us meaning and a reason to live now, best of times, worst of times. Do you believe that? Let's believe it together in prayer.